This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. The Oscars are on the horizon, and though it's been a strange year for the movie industry, the race for the golden statue is nothing short of historic. Notably, there is not one, but two women nominated for Best Director. And I know you're probably rolling your eyes at the Academy's glacial progressive pace, but it's at least a hopeful sign. Those historic directors are Emerald Fennell, nominated for Promising Young Woman, starring Carey Mulligan, and Chloe Zhao, nominated for Nomadland, which stars Frances McDormand as Fern, a woman living out of her van, traveling the country, working seasonal jobs, and meeting a community of like-minded, itinerant Americans along the way. You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. And they sometimes call you Nomads. My mom says that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. Chloe, I should note, is the first woman to receive four nominations in a single year and the first non-white woman to be nominated in the director category. And recently, I had the pleasure of speaking with Chloe as well as three producers of Nomadland, Peter Spears, Molly Asher, and Dan Jampy about this extraordinarily beautiful and strangely prescient film. Peter, let me start with you. You and Francis Option, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century, Francis McDormand, who also stars in the film. It was written by someone named Jessica Bruder, and I'm curious what made you believe that this could be translated into film and would actually make a really compelling movie? Well, when it was sent to us, uh, we read it uh, with an eye to uh, something that Frances might play herself in the movie. But uh, Linda May, who is the main character of the book, uh, is uh, also in our film. But the the book itself follows sort of the journey of Linda from unemployment to eventually buying some land and, and making an earthship on that land. And... I think what both Francis and I responded to in that book felt like a bit of uh, a, a flare going up, uh, while the, and a warning to us all that that there was, as it says in the book, that the Titanic is going down and that we needed to get the lifeboats ready. And I know that the book itself takes place in. 2011, in the in the wake of the 2008 uh, recession. But something really felt prescient about it in the reading of it in 2017. And it felt like really was something uh, afoot in a way that I think we all came to realize in the ensuing year 
was even more widespread and, and deeper than, than we had ever had the ability to look into a crystal ball and see. And when you think about, Dan, what that was, you know, and what this, this whole population represented, you know, what struck you about the message that, that their way of life and their situation was sending that, that Peter talked about? Well, at the moment that I became involved in the film, Chloe had a very specific vision for the movie. And one of the primary, um, one of the primary adaptations that Chloe made was creating the, the character of Fern in collaboration with Francis. And so at the moment that we entered the film, there was this notion of Fern going on a journey through the American West following these various jobs. And so cinematically for me, I was quite drawn to the idea of new, a new entry from Chloe into the American Road movie and into the American Western. And I felt that Chloe's approach to this, for me, I was as much influenced by playing with classic genres of American cinema in radically new ways. So, That's fascinating. And I'm going to talk to Chloe about her vision in a moment. But Molly, I'm just curious, when you got involved in this project, and I think I'm a pretty well-read person, I didn't realize that there were all these nomads traveling across the country from place to place, from job to job, from location to location, um, you know, really making this very peripatetic life for themselves. And I'm curious, Molly, if you were aware of this segment of the population. No, I, I wasn't at all. And, you know, not until reading the book and then even more so how striking it was then meeting Swanky and Linda May and Bob Wells and realizing that, like, I think what people, the notion people might have of someone who lives in their van is very different. You know, this could be somebody who's sitting next to you at a restaurant or behind you in line at the bank or, you know, it's, it's, um, I found that fascinating and, and also uh, really um, warming. Yeah, you know, initially you think, oh, you'll feel sorry for these people. And then you see the way that they're living and how connected they are to both the land and ultimately each other. And then I think it gives you a brand new perspective. I know, Peter, you and Francis, or Francis rather, was at the Toronto Film Festival and you saw the work of a remarkable uh, young filmmaker. <laughs> who's drinking her tea right now. Um, <laughs> I Francis, didn't her mug. Francis came back and said, I think we found our director. What was it about Chloe and that work? And I promise, Chloe, I'm going to get to you next. But Take your time. <laughs> this is so refreshing. I love it. <laughs> but what was it about Chloe's work? I believe it was a film called Writer, I think. The, the Writer, yes. And uh, Molly was the producer on that as well. And, uh, you know, we had really never seen anything quite like it in mine and Francis's experience. We had come up in a more traditional filmmaking, uh, storytelling uh, way, and it just, it, it blew our socks off. We, we really were uh, both uh, mesmerized by the uh, proficient um, uh, way of storytelling, but also how immersive the experience was and how strong uh, the filmmaker's point of view was. And that's always what you're looking for when you're looking uh, to, to find a director for a project. And so we reached out to Chloe. We met the three of us, Chloe, Francis, and I uh, met on the afternoon of the uh, Independent Spirit Awards in Los Angeles that year. All three of us had been working on separate films. Uh, I was coming off Call Me By Your Name and Francis doing three billboards and, and Chloe was just beginning. Uh, with Molly, the 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 ride, uh, you know, the sort of award season ride for for the writer, and we decided then and there that we wanted to make this film. But it was Chloe who suggested to us that instead of a straightforward adaptation, perhaps the movie was more in the style of of the way she had made her earlier two movies, and uh, and we were very very excited. And the next day, she was off, packed her car, and was driving to the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous to meet Bob Wells and Linda and, and all the folks there. And uh, we were off and running. So Chloe, finally, um, tell me when you, first of all, when you, get, when you met with Peter and Francis, I'm such a huge Francis McDormand fan. I love her work. I admire everything about her and have had the, the privilege of interviewing her on multiple occasions. And I'm just curious when 
you were sitting there talking with them. I mean, how cool was that, Chloe? (laughs) (laughs) You have interviewed her, you know, you know, you can't keep your eyes off of her. She has that, she has that ability to just draw you in, you know, because she is very, very curious about people and about the world around her, which make her makes her not only a great actress, but a really great producer in that sense. I think instinctually when she saw the writer, she thought, oh, maybe there's another way to 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 do this, you know. So it was it was exciting. Yeah. So when you thought about us it not doing a straightforward adaptation, but doing something altogether different and so visually, I think original. Tell me when when you when you first conceived of that, how would you describe the way you wanted this film to unfold and the way you wanted to share the stories of the nomads in it, including Fern, of course? Well, for me, making these decisions are su- were such um were always such a gut feeling. Very hard to pinpoint why and how until later uh, when the film is done. And what I realized when Nomadland went out into the world is that people really take away different things, drastically different messages from the film and different experiences. And that's how I felt when I was reading the book, looking back at it. It wasn't just one thing, you know, there were, it, because Jessica did a great job of capturing, yes, there was an event that led to everyone in the book to, to make choices and, or, or to have to, to do something different with their lives. But that bring out different humanity and different kind of human struggle in each of them. And that diversity was so interesting to me that I didn't want to, I wanted to be able to create a character that can allow me to bring as many aspects of that, those stories in as possible. You see that? This is my husband's old fishing box. I put this little latch on it. And then when I open it, the stopper holds it and creates more counter space. And then I keep my really nice stuff inside. My dishes that my dad gave me, he collected these Linda May from yard sales. And when I graduated from high school, he gave me the whole set. Oh, <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah, it's called Autumn Leaf. I don't have that many pieces with me, but you know. What did you name your van? Vanguard. Oh, that is very strong. She is. It's such a quiet, contemplative movie, which I think the power is almost in the the quiet of the film. And uh, and and I think Fern's character remains somewhat an enigma throughout it, um, kind of understanding her and her motivations. You kind of put the pieces together. Mm-hmm. But um how much was Francis involved with really kind of infusing Fern? Because Fern is a little bit of Francis and Francis is a little bit of Fern, right, Chloe? Yeah, I think Francis, she takes a little bit of the characters that she played with her every time. So now, so in a way, Fern is also a little bit of every character she's ever played. So because she really lives her art, you know, so... I think uh, she always said I didn't become an actress to have my pictures taken. I become an <laughs> actress to, to live different lives. And Fran was very much in, involved in creating Fern the way that I relied heavily on the non-professional actors I work with in creating their characters. Uh, yeah, so everything from the way she moved to her, her outfit, to her hair, to the things that she bring into the van, which if you only bring 50 things with you, they say a lot about who you are. And that was a big part of Brian's contribution as well. I'm curious about working with performers and, and non-actors. And, and I know that there were some people from the book, Swanky, I know, and Linda May were in the book, Nomadland, which I'm dying to read, which I haven't read, but I'm going to read. But um, you found them because they were characters, as, as we met, mentioned in Jessica Bruder's book, but there were also a lot of other characters as well. And I'm curious, uh, who of you really had to, I, I know all of you in a way embedded yourselves into these worlds, into these communities, almost as if you were making a documentary. And in some ways it was a weird, I think, hybrid of both film and documentary. Um, and, and how challenging was that to A, win the trust of those people and to film in these real locations where you had a lot of authenticity about 
the life they were leading. I think, well, as far as like how uh, the how the other um, actors came to be, there was kind of we did it in sort of three different ways. One of them is that we had, you know, traditional sort of open calls in various areas. And then we also had um, two people who were doing local casting and they were actually also combining location scouting and local casting. Um, and in that sense, so that's that's actually how we found Derek, the young traveler in the film. Um, and then the other part was just specifically for the RTR was, you know, get, getting getting advice from Linda May, Swanky, Jessica, possibly other nomads that might like to be in the film, reaching out and then and then sort of, you know, becoming part becoming part of the community as much as we could, which is, I think, then how um, there was this this trust and comfortable feeling once we were on set and working with everyone. Katie, I actually think Dan is also really good at talking about better than me this fine line between the documentary aspect and the fictional aspect, which the trick is always making you feel like it feels like a documentary, but it actually the work went into it is not like that at all. Dan? Sure, yeah. And Chloe, I think it's one of your, the most miraculous aspects of how you make movies is, for me, the degree to which you give people an experience as if this is really happening. That's that's the magic trick, is that the end result is the movie feels lived in. And I think when people talk about documentary, they're talking about a sense of um, a notion of this is the world that we live in. This is a real world. And I think that that's absolutely a goal of the work is to give the end result. From a production standpoint, I think that we actually, there's an unbelievable, like any great magic trick, there's an unbelievable amount of things happening off stage, below stage, mm -hmm. and with the group around us kind of end up with that illusion. Um, so the, the best example is the RTR festival that's in our movie is actually a staged RTR. And I think that what's interesting about this way of making movies is like any great magic trick, the boundaries start to get blurred. So you stage an RTR means you, you cast the performers, you bring them to a site that you control, but then the performers end up actually end up having their own RTR. And then on top of that, Chloe and Josh's shooting style is actually very fiction cinema based. Like the references that they would use, like Chloe, the one that's always stood out to me is One Car Why is Happy Together, which mm -hmm. is one of my favorite movies. Our, your, your visual language references are not documentary cinema at all. It's actual narrative storytelling. And then combined with your incredible sense of how the footage is going to end up in the edit. So I think that the whole experience is about creating an infrastructure to end up with that magic trick of. And, and I would add to that, that meanwhile, while all that's going on, Chloe has created this bond with the not with the performers, Francis and David, but and also the non-performers where, because the footprint of the movie and the crew is so small, because we've all been living together for so long uh, that they trust implicitly. And so with compassion and patience and, and, the ability to just want to listen and hear the stories from, you know, just the deepest parts of their beings they, uh, that they offer up uh, and with the camera there and all the other things, it, it's, it melts away. And I see performers who've performed for decades who, who don't have the kind of comfort that, that Chloe is able to create in the space for, for non-performers and performers alike. And, and that's the last part, I think, of the magic trick that Chloe does. I'm going to be 75 this year. And I think I've lived a pretty good life. I've seen some really neat things, kayaking, all those places. And, you know, like, like moose in the wild, a moose family on a river in Idaho and um, big white pelicans landing just six feet over my kayak on a lake in Colorado or uh, um, come around a bend with a cliff and find hundreds and hundreds of swallow nests on the on the wall of the cliff and the swallows fall, flying all around and reflecting in the water so it looks like I'm flying with the swallows and they're under me and over me and all around me and the little babies are hatching out and eggshells are falling out of the nest landing on the water and floating on the water these little white shells it's like it was just so awesome I felt like I'd, I'd done enough my life was complete if I died right right then that moment 
be perfectly fine. And and when they're speaking, a lot of it is, is it not scripted? It's just them telling their stories, Chloe, about who they are and what their wishes are. And Linda May talking uh, about her situation or Swanky and, you know, all the different people kind of, I, I'm just curious how much of it was action that you just kind of set up and let the let the people go with it and share or how much it was actually, you know, orchestrated dialogue. I, I, I got the feeling, and maybe this is part of the magic too, that it was just people talking about their lives and somehow it all just worked together beautifully. Can you explain how that worked? That, that somehow is the, uh, the magic trick part. Because if you just show up and have people talk about their lives, what you're going to end up is our, I mean, hundreds of hours of footage has nothing to do with your film. So the process is actually really straightforward. People ask me, how do you work with non-professional actors? I say, you start with the writing, right? You have to know for a movie, what's the main emotional arc? And then you need to pick moments that are going to supplement this main emotional arc. It can go off, you know, Linda May and Swanky talking about something that has to do with Fern's plot, but it has to have something to do with Fern's plot on the very deep level. So then you pick your non-professional actors. First of all, they have to be okay on a camera. You put a camera on them right away, let them speak, and then see if they're, I can't do it. Right. And uh, and so then when and then you spend days with them and sometimes just a few hours, because that's all the time we have. And then you 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 listen really, really carefully of what they're really trying to say about themselves. And then you do a lot of that, too. And, you know, I'm sure you know what, how that feels. You have to really go beyond because people have a lot of walls they put up. And then that's where you have to push a little further and go but tell me about that day. And then, and then when you hear these things and you go, oh, that is really going to, that's going to represent what, who they really want to say about who they are. And then that's also going to work for Fern's journey because the audience has to care in that moment because they're invested in Fern. So they have to care what Swanky is going to say for that moment to feel emotional. So I put those words, those specific lines onto the script. And then my DP is going to read it and, and you know, my producer is going to, they all going to read it and go, my, my, my sound, you know, Wolf, our, our sound recorders, uh, mixer, he's going to read it. We're all going to come, come to a place and go, how do we cinematically best put this moment on screen? And on that day, if Swanky already know this part of her own life, that's when instead of hiring an actor who talked to Swanky and then do the scenes, she's going to do it herself. So on that day for her, you know, the producers has created an environment where feel like it's just in her space, that she's not being asked to come to a stage, you know, with all these lights on her. Our DP has done a great job. Our sound mixer has done a great job. And in that moment, she feels like she's just living her own story. But everything else around her is carefully planned. So, so that it could make into the film later and mean something. I learned that from my first film, where I thought spontaneous means not planning. And I mean, like, you know, go with the flow, like, just show up and do it. And then re- when I, and I also work on the edit of my first film and realize it's great stuff, but it had nothing to do with the film and no one's going to care. So we'll be right back with more Nomad Land in just a moment. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. I know you all traveled all over. Uh, it was shot over six months, in, starting in September 2018 in South Dakota for the scenes in the Badlands and at Waldrug, then on to Nebraska, Nevada, uh, the Northern California coast, Yuma, Arizona, and then San Bernardino County. Was it tough moving around so much? I know you worked with a pretty small crew. Um, and I also know that you kind of lived the way the nomads lived in the process of making this film, which must have brought you even closer to, to the story and, and to the narrative. But was that challenging, Peter, just schlepping all over, <laughs> all over the country? Yeah, schlepping is the right word. You specifically, was it, was it hard for you? <laughs> uh, you know, I think I, I jokingly say I'm the only Eagle Scout in the world who ever managed to get uh, a badge without camping. Uh, you know, it was... Uh, that never my thing, uh, but I immediately, uh, Chloe had this idea with, in, in conjunction with all the producers that because uh, she and Molly uh, and, and Josh, the DP had, had made movies together before, the rest of us were, were new to this process. And, and she needed to quickly kind of get us up and running in the style of, of how we were gonna make this movie. So that, that getting together in September, beside needing some summer shots seasonally, she also had had the thought that this would be a good boot camp for, for us all to learn her the language of how she does this and to learn about, you know, magic hour hustle and all the other sorts of components so that when we got to the winter part of the movie, which was going to be a lot more extreme and shorter days, colder days, and um, much more emotional material we were going to be dealing with, we had a, we had a little more of that muscle memory that the rest of the, the the rest of that group had already brought to the uh, proceedings, so that that helped a lot. That was a, a, a big help in the process. Molly, want to add to that what what it yeah. was like for you, the experience of all this travel and kind of indoctrinating you into these different areas and and with with a new set of people, or in some cases, some of the same people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, another thing I think that came out of the first the the, the sort of um, boot camp that that Peter mentioned was that also like logistically too, we were kind of testing, you know, do we have the right kinds of vehicles? Like, do, do we have, do we need more crew, you know, for the, the next time that we're going out? And so, so some things were adjusted, you know, specifically I remember our, our um, one of the equipment vans. Um, and then, you know, going place to place as, as to just the planning of it, um, it's sort of just like planning a, an out of town shoot, but you just are traveling you know, multiple times rather than just, you know, going to that one place and staying there. But it was incredible how different each place was. And, you know, not only the environment, but but the people. And I think that that also, you know, that I think you feel that when, when you're watching the film, that it's not only the landscape that's changing, but also the people that are of this landscape. I was going to say, say I think the landscape itself and and the land really is such a character in this film in every in every possible way and Chloe I'm curious how you were able to translate a certain emotional connection connectivity to the land the people on it and and if you in fact saw saw it as a as almost a, a character in and of itself I think it definitely is you know, and it is something that I, I was not, I, I grew up in big cities, I lived in big cities most of my life. And I definitely felt a lack of um, connection with nature is, is something that is problematic in my life. And making these last three films, 
to experience the natural environment through my character's perspective and see how important the, the, the natural world is for their healing process, for, for them to have space to rediscover themselves. Um, these are incredible experiences I get to have. Um, and so uh, to understand why Swanky will give up the comfort of a home uh, in a suburb and go live in the desert of Arizona, you really have to capture the sunset the way she sees it. It will never be as beautiful as she sees it, but we try. And, and speaking of, of Swanky and, and Linda May and, and everyone else, was it hard to, you know, as a journalist, I have to earn someone's trust, especially if it's a sensitive mm-hmm. story about a life experience or, mm-hmm. you know, about their, their very way of life or something traumatic that happens to them. And I, I'm curious how, you know, it's one thing to, to share your story with someone writing a book, right? It's a whole nother thing to be on film, to have your face shown, to talk, to have to kind of recount your life experience. Was it hard to win the trust of some of these people? Because I know you didn't have all the time in the world. And did anyone say, I I don't want to, I don't want to be a part of this. Uh, They felt maybe they were going to be exploited or, or made fun of, or be kind of an oddity. And I'm just curious how, how you were able to do that. I think definitely, you know, there there were people that weren't sure 100%, you know, and even had questions with me talking about it on the morning of the shoe, especially the people who had to share some really personal things. And sometimes their friends are surprised, wow, you did it, you know, even right there. Um, I have to just, I know that when I go to bed at night, I can I can go to sleep. Like, I, I have to, because you, you can't... Um, you have to set a moral standard for yourself and you you go by that day after day. And I think if you're truthful and you're authentic and you go in there, try to relate, relate to another human being as a human being, not with an agenda, I think they will feel it deep inside. They will feel it. And the people who are too guarded, they, they're not going to come to into our lives anyways, because we are a, a fictional filmmaking team. We invite people to come in. Would you like to be in the movie to act? So if they are really resistant, they wouldn't even come anywhere near us. And so we're halfway there. And with Jessica, who have gotten to know everyone for so long, and I would always go to her and say, do you think this is someone that we even feel comfortable sharing their stories? And you can never completely prepare someone how they're going to react in the very end. You just have to be truthful and hope for the best. So far, we have had great experiences making three films with non-professional actors. Like Swanky would let me know a couple of days ago. I was not prepared for the size of my raincoat on an IMAX screen. (laughs) 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 I think she's seen it so many times in IMAX now. She was like, do you know how big those raincoats are, Chloe? Uh, That's as much of a complaint I think I got. (laughs) And Chloe, I think another factor from is that you set a tone for the rest of the crew. Because from a production standpoint, I'm always struck by the question of what it's like to work with non-professional performers, because for us, they are our stars. They are our actors. And I think that Chloe's relationship and Josh's relationship with them is on a, a spiritual level of storyteller to human and human to storyteller. But it sets a tone for the rest of the crew to kind of create a comfortable environment for our performers. And I know that for the Nomadland company, they loved being with Bob and Swanky and Linda May. I think Chloe, that comes from the tone of like, these are, these people are part of our filmmaking family. And it just, the whole, the whole entity exists to kind of create a culture of comfort where people can be themselves and vulnerable and act. Yeah, and I remember Bob said after the screening, he said, I just feel like we were all filmmakers. We were a team telling this story, story together because they knew we needed them. So what he needed to show us where the place that we can film in the desert that has this cactus. Bob is going to help us get in touch with two of their friends who are going to be able to do the solar thing. You know, so it's really a group of filmmakers. We, we treat our non-professional actors very much as uh, someone who can help us with resources as well. So it's, it was a, very much a teamwork. 
And and talk about maybe Peter the the role Fran slash Fern, you know how she kind of it, obviously she's the epicenter of this film, but how her story um, is the connective tissue to talk about the the major theme. And I'm going to ask you about the major themes of the movie next, but to kind of to put everything together and to be almost the 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 wheel as everyone else is, are the spokes, if you will. Does that make sense? Or what is the thing in the center of the wheel? Would that be? Uh, what is that called? The center again, the Eagle Scout who has no idea what the uh, you know the thing in the middle of the wheel. Call the mechanic. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I look. I, I think this is also something Chloe can speak to as well. And and I'll try to spend. I, I I wouldn't you know, to speak for Francis, but I, I feel when I've heard her speak about this, you know, um, in, in so many ways from the very beginning of, of the creation of the movie, Francis first said to Chloe, you know, I've always had this dream that someday I'm going to hit the road and with a bottle of Jack Daniels and a pack of Lucky Strikes and, and leave my husband and, and, and call myself, you know, change my name to Fern and, and head off into the world. So she she got to do that and in a sort of way. And, and, and Chloe and she really worked together in this collaboration to create the space where she is living these days, not as Francis the actor, but as, as Fran, Fern Francis, the person who is literally driving all the miles, anywhere that van went for five months, Francis was driving that van. And Francis was, you know, living the life of, of these, same people that we were all sort of amongst and with. So the, she, in so many ways, was the glue, not because she came in as the performer and was doing something other or something that felt artificial. She had completely immersed herself in, into this world uh, in a way that in many scenes, many people didn't even know she was Francis. When we would arrive and left, they didn't know it was even Francis McDormand or they didn't know who Francis McDormand was. Uh, and, and, and that was sort of the beauty, I think, of, of Francis's commitment to uh, and her ability. The other half of great acting is great listening and, and her ability to truly listen and hear and want to know and want to connect uh, to the people that she was, she was working shoulder to shoulder with. We'll be right back. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. It seemed like Francis's character, it seemed as if Fern and so many of the other nomads, that this is the choice of how they want to live. You know, I think, as I said earlier, it's not what they're forced to do. And in fact, she couldn't deal with being in a comfortable home. Uh, and I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't seen the film, but that was so oppressive to her. Uh, and I found that so interesting that 
this is a proud life choice. It's not a desperate uh, way to live. And I think that's one of the big, at least takeaways that I uh, had that this is a preferred lifestyle and a choice, not as if people don't have any other options, but this is a choice. And I think that became very clear when, when Fern didn't want to live in a comfortable house with uh, a dog and children running around. And do you think that most, I mean, I'm just so curious about the motivation of many of these people to choose this particular lifestyle. What, what do you think it is, Chloe? Well, first of all, I don't think we can, I don't think you can spoil Nomadland. So don't. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Those people, because I try things that they, people always worry. I don't want to give away. I, I don't think the tension is enough for people to be. Uh, jokes aside, I, I think it's really important for us to, and I, I hope Nomadland does show that us, it's just not in your face, um, that even though it is a choice for someone like Swanky and Farm Bob Wells, it's important that they have a choice. You know, I think I think it's very important not to um, forget that uh, many of them were forced into at the beginning without a choice, right? Eventually, they learned something about themselves, and some of them decided, like Linda May, no, I'm going to stay stand still. I want to build an earthship. Some of them, like Bob, say, no, I'm going to keep going. But the initial lack of choice is now something we we think is okay. You know, the, the way that uh, elder care in this country uh, at the moment, or, or it's been like that for a long time, and, and the feeling of uh, if you don't contribute to the capitalist economy, then you're disposable. That's a shame for any society because elders have so much wisdom to leave behind. And we learn so much. I personally learn so much being around people of, Fern and Bob Linda May's generation to learn about life, to learn about grief and loss and death and perseverance and all these things, but we don't think about the elder that way. So that's something that we want to make it very clear. All of us feel like hopefully that message come across. And then each individual, um, after we've been put so many different identity on us, a mother, a co-worker, it's part of a community, a, a daughter and all that, if, if all that goes away one day, who am I? And many of them were put in that situation after 2008. And um, I think I think whether it's a sunset or like the way Fern said, I don't need any of these things at the end when she was at the storage place. They felt weighted down by working so hard, giving up their entire lives for things that doesn't really matter to them compared to a sunset. You know, um, and then wanting to be closer to nature because when you're getting to a certain age, I remember friends said this to me. I moved to a small town next to the ocean because I want to feel close to the dirt that I'm gonna about to go into. And this feeling of contemplating of mortality and want to be close to nature. And there's a lot of reasons why each of them choose to keep going. For Bob, there's also a bigger reason. You know, he wants to help other people. He wants to be part of a something of a movement, um, but that's very individual for each person, uh, why they end up choosing to not go back to a house when they can. Finally, if, if you all had to describe what nomad land is really about at its, at its essence, what would you say? And I'll just go around the horn and start with Dan. What would you say nomad land is about, Dan? I think that what, what Chloe was talking about, one thing that was on my mind is about why the movie may resonate with so many people who aren't in the same set of circumstances as the characters of Nomadlands. And a lot of privileged people see the film and we come from privileged backgrounds as filmmakers as well, that the Burns journey is an extreme journey, physical journey that I think is a spiritual one that all people go on, where we ask ourselves, what does it mean to have a home? Who is that home with? Where do we find happiness? Where do we find survival? So I think that, especially in the context of the pandemic, Fern is going through a physical journey that is a spiritual journey that a lot of us are going on, regardless of where we are in life or what age we're on. There, the, the movie asks you to lean into some big cosmic questions about being alive in America right now. 
So I think, I think Burns' journey allows us to go on our own spiritual journeys. And I think all great movies give you the ability to go to worlds that you don't know to then look within your own soul and say, okay, well, who am I? And what does it mean for me to be alive? I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it totally makes sense. I think think it was beautiful actually. And, and, and Chloe's uh, assessment, I think of the characters was as well. Um, But I think you're right. It it brings up a lot of cosmic issues uh, through these, through this, storytelling just of a few characters and uh, and a lot of questions about society, about capitalism, about income inequality, about disposable, you know, people as, as disposable, about workers, the workforce, Amazon. I mean, there are a lot of, it's a lot of stuff, you know, in one, in one small film really. And, and Molly, for you, As Chloe, it struck me, Chloe said, everybody kind of takes something different away from it. I also thought a lot about isolation and loneliness because I can't really, I'm not good at being alone. I can't really stand the, my own company. (laughs) And, uh, and, and, and I would be really, I would go crazy if I led the kind of isolated life that Fern was living, you know, without companionship on these long drives. I mean, and and so me for me it was a lot about living with loneliness or live you know or tolerating acceptant accepting loneliness and um, yes. solitary yes. you know sorry I just and, love that I love that I really hope someone take away that thank you <laughs> <laughs> um, and and Molly so when you think about it what what do you think the film is about and I think I know Chloe I'm going to have you in in this conversation because I know you've talked about the American dream, but first Molly, you. Yeah, I mean, actually I was gonna bring up the American dream because I think when I first, just first reading the book, I really, you know, the the, the people in this film in the book are, are my parents' age. And I remember after the financial crisis, they had this whole plan of what their retirement was gonna be and that all fell apart. And, um, and so I was really interested in exploring this, um, this whole idea of like, when you have this, idea of what your life is going to be, this American dream, and it doesn't work out. And then finding your own way to, you know, sort of rebuild an American dream for your, for yourself. And how much we really need and how much we really don't need, right? I mean, a lot of it is about sort of crass consumerism too. But anyway, Peter, what about you? I think I'm really struck, I, and I've seen it several times now, and I come away from different things, but I think I'm really of late, I felt very moved uh, by the concept of these people in our lives who are the rememberers, those people, the people who are sort of traveling with the memory of someone gone, of something gone, of a lost community, of lost lover, of lost friendships, of, of lost meaning, and 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 certainly in the in the movie, you know, the line, "What remember? What what's remembered lives." And, and, and it just, the idea of, of grief and how we process that and, and that, you know, the death doesn't necessarily end a relationship and that it struggles still in the minds of, uh, you know, of, of whomever for some kind of resolution that it may or may not find feels, you know, uh, feels very much uh, of, of import right now in the time we're living in. I also think, and, you know, who cares what I think, but I was just going to say, Chloe, that while it was about loneliness and isolation, it was also very much about community and the fact that humans, human to human contact can really happen anywhere if you have like an open heart and you're willing to share. And especially, I think it was especially poignant, poignant for me watching the scene around the fire where people were throwing things in the fire and saying a few words and that kind of communal ritual, ritualistic exercise and, and how community can be anywhere. Does that make sense? Yeah. uh, Yeah. And look, the, the loneliness aspect for me, it starts there, you know, it starts there because I think wanting to tell stories is in a way of saying, is there anybody out there? 
you know, I just, you want to reach out because there's a deep loneliness I think we all have and, and we, it's got to resolve in different ways. For me, is to connect with other people through storytelling. And um, in order to tell stories, I have to believe, I have to have the faith that we're inherently good as human beings, that we inherently have compassion for one another, even though we disagree on everything. So when I go out there in the middle of nowhere, uh, of a community that's not my own, I search for that compassion. I always find it. And I think Nomadland um, document that experience for me of these people around the fire have nothing in common coming from all walk of life, but can listen to each other and try to see the world from the other person's perspective and, and have compassion for each other. And as a result, have compassion for themselves. A big thank you to all my guests today, director Chloe Zhao, producers Peter Spears, Molly Asher, and Dan Champy. You can watch The Incredible Nomad Land on Hulu. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.